Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, I'm not here. No, I'm on holiday. Remember those? A mere two years after booking the damn thing, my wife and I have finally left our little plague island for the next two weeks. So I'm hopefully on a beach as you hear this, but thanks to the wonders of preparation and digital time travel, you are hearing me record this amidst my unpacked luggage and myriad pieces of paper saying that I don't have COVID. Remember when travelling was easy? Speaking of which, our guest this week transports us to Japan to face a very nasty ghost. The writer is Cassandra Kaur, and their brand new novella, Nothing But Black and Teeth, pits a hideous spectre from Japanese folklore against a bunch of deeply irritating millennials, and glorious chaos ensues. Cass is a fantastic guest, and together they and I unearth some deeper meaning to the non-Western tradition of hauntings. Along the way, we give some time to Malaysian horror films, we share our fondness and fear of famed editor Ellen Datlau, and we talk about the complex nature of old friendship. Oh, and Cass gives, in my opinion, the best ever answer to the question of what scares them. So, off we go to a mansion in the east, where a wide black smile welcomes us in. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Cassandra, and welcome to Talking Scared. Hi, thank you for having me. First of all, how are you? Uh, As good as anyone can be in this time of the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that that, again, the shades of grey there, it can be good or really bad, but we're all still here and and, and breathing and smiling, so on the bright side. (laughs) Small blessings, or large, as the case may be. We, We arranged this chat a long time ago, back when... When Halloween and October fell years away, and now here we are. So, I mean, first of all, whereabouts in the world are you currently? It's always nice to get a picture of where people are. I am located in Montreal, Quebec, amidst the nice changing foliage. And it's going to be my last month in Quebec before I move to Sweden next month. Yeah, you were telling this off air. That is, I imagine that's stressful at the best of times, but let alone in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, it's also to do with all the little nitty-gritty details. I was a nomad essentially for about 10 years, and I got really used to traveling with like one carry-on and one gigantic suitcase. But now I have two cats who are about the same size as I am. I'm discovering there are a whole lot more complications when you're trying to ship animals internationally, especially of that size. Yeah, when you say big cats, I mean, what do you mean? About 30 inches or so. Oh, you haven't got a lion. Right, okay. <laughs> Just lynxes, no lions. Okay, fine. I imagine shipping those is still quite hard work. M- my current stress is that, as I was telling you off air, I'm looking at going on my first holiday in like three years, but I have a, a little puppy. Well, he's not a puppy now. He's a year oh, old. No. And I have to put him in kennels. And it's oh, no. it's breaking my heart. Like, I, I'm not really coping very well with... The, I've told my wife that she has to take him, that I can have no part in this. Oh, no! So, yeah, I mean, do your cats have to go in the hold when they when they fly? Um, they do, and because it's an international move, um, 
they're also going to get shipped off to somebody else. They're going to have to do boarding for a little while. And there's a chance they might have to spend the night in Amsterdam in the care of really good people in KLM. But just the idea of my little babies just trapped in the middle of nowhere with nothing yeah. familiar. God, my heart is just breaking. I'm just so worried for them. Well, I don't want to upset you anymore. They, they will be fine, <laughs> but I know what you mean. Like Me and my wife have already decided we want to move to Canada, ironically. We, we want to kind of go the other way. But we've decided if we go to Canada, we're going by boat, just so my dog Ted doesn't have to go in a hold. Honestly, I, I'm on board with that. I wish I could do that as well. But like, I, I unfortunately, my new job will be very cross with me if I do that. Well, anyway, well, I hope the move goes well, obviously. But we, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about something much darker and, and more gruesome. It, it's your new book, <laughs> your, your new novella, Nothing But Blackened Teeth. Uh, but actually, quite fittingly, this, here, how's this for an awkward segue? This book actually it allows us to transport ourselves halfway around the globe and it will give me a chance to talk about what well to ask all about one of my favorite folklores which is the kind of japanese ghost story but yeah nothing but black and teeth it's out in the world now by the time people hear this can you give us some idea of what it's about to get this chat off on the right foot it is about a group of five friends who were obsessed with ghosts, who grow up and then decide that they're going to host a wedding in a forgotten, in a little Japanese manor in the middle of nowhere that is reputed to be haunted. And needless to say, things go terrible. So terrible. Yeah, they go very terrible. Now, I, I am going to tease more details out of you than that, but we will we will try and obviously avoid spoilers. So to start this conversation, right, mm -hmm. let's talk about the form before we get to the the content, so to speak. So so this is this is a little book. It's a novella. It's it's approximately 120 pages long. Um, mm -hmm. I read it in one sitting. Well, you know, novellas are great for that. But despite being a little book, it's prompted a lot of questions and ideas. When I sat down, I thought, oh, God, what am I going to ask to fill the time? And then I quickly wrote like twice the amount of questions that I need. So <laughs> I've read a few novellas this year. And generally speaking, I end them, whether good or bad, thinking, yeah, that was the perfect length. You were right not to pad it out any further. But nothing but black and teeth has the potential to be this to be a 500-page doorstop. <laughs> it's got multiple characters with kind of complex, overlapping histories and a wealth of lore. So why did you choose to tell it as such a contained tale? I want to say it was because of something very intelligent, but the truth was um, I spent, I think, five, six years as a journalist, and I'm really used to writing very condensed things. I'm not used to writing sprawling stories. So a novella felt like the right size for me. And I've also really enjoyed novellas in the sense that I like, well, let me, let me think of how to phrase this. One of the things I enjoy doing sometimes is just people watching. You go to a park bench, you just sit down with a book or a good cup of coffee, and you just look around, you see people interacting, you see arguments taking place for a split second to last 10, 20 minutes. And you're like, what is the story? What happened here? And then those people go away and you never, 
ever get to see them again? And the questions just kind of grow and bubble in the back of your head sometimes. And that's what novellas are to me, both in terms of as a reader and as a creator. I like leaving people with questions. I like leaving enough for people to come up with ideas, but also have people hungry by the end of the book. I was definitely hungry at the end of the book because I <laughs> wanted to dive into the history of this house. I wanted to know everything about it. But I, I do kind of get what you're saying because you meet these characters and you give us plenty to, to kind of judge who they are and what their connections are. But there are still mysteries there. And those mysteries and those uncertainties definitely come into play in the final kind of passage of, of the book where we find out what they're capable of. But we'll, we'll get to all that. We'll, we'll progress systematically. Um, to, to stay with the format though for a while um, as much as you say you enjoy that and you enjoy that kind of, sort of almost snippet of life do you have any frustration would be the wrong word but do you feel sometimes that you you want to kind of explore this or develop that but you find yourself paring things down though um, no honestly I've always had the reverse problem um, I co-wrote a novel recently with Richard Cadre of the Sandman Slim fame. And <laughs> he's visiting right now. I just made a cheery gesture in the background. <laughs> um, and most of the book was him going, no, no, we can expand on this. No, this is not a paragraph long. Like we can grow it. And he had to coax more length out of me. So yeah, I've never had a tr problem paring things down. Okay, so I, that's the opposite of me. Give me one word and I'll just use 10, you know, like, and I, I find people who can write that lean, spare, almost brutal prose, it, it's so effective because I, I just can't do it. Like, adjectives all over the place when I write. I think, again, it's the journalism thing. Uh, one of my earliest editors, he had this thing about dropping 150-word reviews on me. And I remember going back to him and going, like, I cannot condense a 20-hour game into 150 words. And he's like, no, you absolutely can. You just got to work on it. And so that training kind of stuck forever, I think. If I was to do that, I would end up with a mechanical piece of prose that was emptied out of all meaning or emotion or anything beyond, <laughs> you know, what the words mean. But some people, yourself included, have the ability to kind of cut out all the spare flesh but still leave something that is beautiful and poignant. Oh, thank you. And, and I, yeah, I don't understand how you do that because I basically create meaning and create emotion by just going, have some more. Like, here's everything you could possibly <laughs> need, you know? So, yeah, no, it, it, it's, th this book is a kind of masterclass in, in pairing back and just leaving what you oh, need. Jeez, that's so kind. It's a nasty little ghost story. It is. And I think it's <laughs> nasty because there is no spare flesh on the bone. That's what makes it so cold. It's like a razor. Um, I mean, next week, I'm talking to Catherine Valente about her new novel, Comfort Me With Apples. So, oh, I love these, that book so much. Isn't it? It's, it goes places I did not expect. Yeah, it starts yes. as kind of a Stepford Wives thing and becomes something entirely different. These two episodes will make a great pair, you know, about the craft and the approach and all that. And I'll probably ask her this same question. But... What is the, the process of getting a novella published? 
they're getting more popular all the time. But I am assuming it's still harder to publish something of this length than a 350-page novel. Honestly, I would not be able to tell you. This is mostly what I've been publishing since I entered the publishing world. Um, a lot of it is just kind of running up to my editor, Ellen Datlow, and going, do you like this? <laughs> so I think I'm very fortunate in that sense. Well, I saw in your dedication that you say thanks to Ellen Datlow for uh, for believing in the book. And, and it, it kind of made me laugh because I've, I've, I've met and spoken to Ellen for this show. But here's a here's a little bit of insider baseball. She was the first person I ever interviewed, and I lost the file, so it never got <gasps> released. No. But I'm speaking to her again in November. People, that's exclusive. People don't know that yet. But I'm speaking to her again in November. Um, I basically grovelled gratuitously to try and get her back on the show. So well, it's fine. Imagine my shame as a brand new podcaster when you lose kind of the queen of horror editing's oh, file. No. Yeah, imagine imagine my reaction. But Ellen is a, from what I could glean, a formidable person. Very lovely. Oh, but, she is. You know, she does not mince her words. So I imagine going to her with a book and saying, what do you think of this is, is quite the daunting prospect. It absolutely is. I think for the first two years of her friendship, I was just utterly and completely terrified of her. And it was actually... <laughs> Ellen, who coaxed nothing but blackened teeth out of me, she basically smacked me over the upside of the head repeatedly and went, all right, you've been sending me short stories. When are you going to send me a book, Cassandra? And I'm like, here, here is a book. I don't know what I'm doing with it. I think it's all broken, but you keep asking for a book, Ellen, and I don't dare to say no to you. And I handed it over to her and she took it. And I remember she sat with it for two months, two of the most like nail-biting months of my life. And eventually I get an email from her and the first line from it was, don't panic. I actually like this book a lot, but we do need to work on it. And then there was like 18 pages of edits to follow. Right. Okay. But yeah, (laughs) basically, yeah, it was very intimidating because she is genuinely a very formidable human being. Mm -hmm. I spoke to Stephen Graham Jones recently and I asked him how, the Only Good Indians came about. And he basically told me the same story that, that Ellen said to him, give me a novel, <laughs> essentially. And he's like, kind of like, he scurried away and wrote her a novel just because like, it's Ellen Datlow. And- really? Oh my God. So the, the book that has won all of the prizes and all the plaudits basically just exists because Ellen said, give me a novel, Stephen. Um, yeah, she's quite the powerhouse. She is. But but I definitely think she's earned a lot of it. She does so much work to improve everyone's writing. She's constantly reading, constantly mining the industry for new talents. Um, She just has an encyclopedic knowledge of every horror story that I've ever written in any year. It's wild. The most nerve-wracking moment of my life, aside from when I lost her audio file, (laughs) is when I was talking to her. um, And I briefly mentioned that I just had a short story published in a collection of folk horror called The Fiend in the Pharaohs. And she went, oh, yeah, I've got it here, and pulled it out. And I was like, oh, shit, Ellen Datlow's got my story. Oh, oh, shit. Oh, oh, no. (laughs) Anyway, I look forward to speaking to her, but back to you. I don't normally do this, but let's talk for a second about the Tor Nightfire cover of Black and Teeth. Yes. This cover is easily the best of the year, in my opinion. Thank you. Were you delighted with it when you saw it? 
I was and was not all at the same time, and I'm explaining in a split second here.、Um, I love the cover. I, I I thought it was everything I wanted. The sense of movement, like it felt like I don't know this promo art for an incredible Japanese horror film. It was everything I could imagine for the book. But I remember looking and thinking, I will never have a print of this in my house, no matter how much I want it. I cannot think, I cannot imagine a world where this lives. In a building where I live in, because I'm gonna wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning trying to go to the loo, and I will scream if I turn around and find her on a wall. Yeah, it's for those who haven't seen it. It basically is a kind of slightly out of focus rendering of the the, the central spirit that's in the in in the story. I mean, you'll have seen it by now, trust me. But if not, I'll put it on Twitter with this episode, and it's it's really genuinely frightening. It evokes for me a memory of my first ever cover of Stephen King's Carrie, which is just a picture、mm-hmm. of Sissy Spacek's face with blood pouring down it. And I remember、oh. I used to have that book, and it would it would look at me that book. It would stare at me when I was a kid, thirteen years old, and it would scare the hell out of me. And this is quite similar. It's it's a glorious cover. I actually wrote to the the artist Samuel Araya to say just basically well done. It got me thinking, actually, because for me, I'm increasingly starting to think of of covers as part of the text rather than the paratext. I mean, not you know the old adage, "Don't judge a book by its cover." I'm not sure that's true,、mm-hmm. because to me, it feels like the cover of Black and Teeth actually complements the story. It actually kind of helps build the character of the antagonist. Oh, I think that's not just true for my book, but. Or for Nightfire, I think that's true for Macmillan. General Macmillan's covers have always been incredibly evocative, and I don't know. It might just be a thing for this particular publishing house. Well, you're being published by Titan in the UK, aren't you? For this, I am. And they, without a doubt, do the best covers in the UK. Every cover they do is breathtaking. Oh yes, the Hollow Places for T King Fisher was just gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, it was. Let's get into the story itself, right? This is the fun、mm-hmm. stuff. So, it's a haunted house tale, in the truest sense, in which the horror and the haunting is pressed into the very fabric of the building, quite literally, in this case. And in that way, it kind of continues that rich Western legacy of haunted houses as character, which I suppose you could attribute all the way back to Poe, or even more. Closely with something like Shirley Jackson's Hill House, where the, the house、mm-hmm. is character. But of course, your novel, novella rather, is set、mm-hmm. in Japan, and it's infused with this specific Japanese supernaturalism. How does setting your novel in in Asia or Japan specifically either allow or demand a different approach to the haunted house? Um, given that I grew. I was born and raised in Asia. I don't think I can answer the question. I have no experience with the Western traditions of haunted houses. My experiences have all been rooted in Asian folklore and Asian supernaturalism. So this is more borrowing from my you know, personal relationship with the supernatural back home and how we all viewed the houses. I remember growing up in Malaysia. And everyone had a story about something strange that happened in their houses, or this apartment building possibly being haunted, or that apartment building having some difficult history to it. I am very not Western. 
well, that, that's that's good because it allows a, a kind of richer vein of conversation. But I've read other interviews with you where you've talked about the culture you grew up in having a very different response to local ghost stories and local folklore mm-hmm. and urban legends that them being much more the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, like in Malaysia, every year there's the Hungry Ghost Festival, and it just takes place with no one batting an eyelash. Enormous stages are erected for people to perform. And most of the spectators are assumed to be ghosts. And it's just treated as naturally as, I don't know, a random parade. So is it, I mean, I don't know much about the Hungry Ghost Festival. I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. I mean, so is it one of those festivals which sees death in a more healthy sense you know similar to something like the day of the dead in mexico where it's seen as a a, a healthy processing of of mortality and grief as opposed to the the western idea that all death is bad and must be avoided i don't know if it's a healthier processing of death and grief as much as it is i guess extrapolation from how we view the afterlife um it oh let me think about how to phrase this Back home, there was always the sense that it's entirely possible that there is a completely different realm out there with spirits and ghosts and officials from hell, but they just lived on a separate plane from us. And so the Hungry Ghost Festival is just an extension of that. It's the assumption that once a year, the gates of hell open and the dead just come back and wander around. It's not even for people to process the idea. It's more like, oh, uh, this ancient art might be there. We should maybe put out an offering. Or I wonder who's hanging out. Oh, don't go into that water during this festival because some people believe that this is when the ghosts who are stuck in hell will want to drown someone, for example, and use them as a replacement in hell so they can rejoin the reincarnation cycle. I'm having difficulties with this question because how death and ghosts are viewed back home, especially in Southeast Asia, is just completely different from how the West views any of this. Yeah, and that that really interests me because it it feels to me like obviously in horror circles, the Western world has has you know largely dominated. I mean, gothic is a you know a british and european tradition the americans took it etc and then obviously we've we've kind of raided j horror for want of a better word and and diluted that and remade it as you know that kind of cultural colonization that is ever going on um but it feels like the rest of the world has got a far far more interesting attitude towards death the afterlife, mortality, grief, haunting, all of these things, um, than, than, than the UK and America does, and, and presumably Canada. Um, it, it feels very different. Like, there is much it, more it variety for a start. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm very keen not to treat all Asian horror as a monolith, you know, as, as these things so often are. I may be wrong in that, but you were born in Malaysia, but your novel is set in Japan. Is there a reason for that? Or is there not much difference between the two kind of supernatural cultures? Um, There are definitely a lot of differences. I think Southeast Asia is in many ways a lot more brutal in its regards to the supernatural. Um, 
there are just a lot more nasty things back home. <laughs> For example, like the toyo. The toyo is essentially a dead fetus preserved in a bottle. That some people say you can feed your blood, and then it will go off to steal things for you. But unfortunately, this、uh, the toyo tends to get really attached, so you have to give it gifts, and sometimes it will just follow your family lineage forever because it has gotten used to the blood in your family.、And、I'm not sure that exists in Japan.、Um, part of the reason I drew from Japanese mythology instead. Is even in Malaysia there is that fascination with J horror because J horror I think was treated with more respect than Southeast Asian horror for the longest time. Actually, I think it still is, and so in a weird way it felt exotic. And I wanted my characters, all of whom came from Malaysia, to explore that and to have a little bit of that wide-eyed foreign curiosity about this world. Um, because I feel like if they went to a haunted house in Malaysia, they would have been a lot more respectful. <laughs> yeah, there's that. There's a great line that you use where you say, "In Malaysia, you know, you knew to look for ghosts. That superstition was your compass."、Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it feels like there are rules that in in Malaysia they would know how to behave in this situation. Yes, it wouldn't be the way they behave in the book. <laughs> um. Yeah, and I think I wrote that book partially, playing with that idea that there's no one culture that is better than any other.、Um, every culture has questionable views in one way or another of something else. We exotify everything, no matter where we come from, and every human being, regardless of their upbringing, is responsible for interrogating any of the biases、um, they started out with. I'm glad I asked that question. Then, to be honest, because as I say, I think a lot of people, probably myself, in, in some points, you know, we do treat any kind of exotic region of the world as, as monolithic. You know, we go, oh, it's Asia. That they have their horror, and we have ours. I mean, my my limited kind of knowledge of Southeast Asian horror. So, like something like、um, a Tale of Two Sisters from Korea feels very different to something like Ringu. You know, they. They feel like very different folklores and 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 very different responses to that thing. And are there any specifically Malay stories or texts or films that you could recommend? I don't. I can't think of any Malay stories specifically because,、um, just to clarify, Malay and Malaysian is actually entirely different things.、Um, the Malays are an ethnic group. Malaysians are a nationality. Um, so I can't think of any Malay horror I can recommend off the top of my head, but Malaysian horror.、Uh, I really love The Eye by the Peng Brothers. I think I watched it in the nineties, and even today, I still occasionally have nightmares of an、mm-hmm. elevator scene from it. Yeah, yeah, that is a phenomenal film. It is. Embarrassingly, it was two embarrassing things there because one, I didn't realise that Malay and Malaysian were different things. So thank you for for telling me. Every day is a school day,、um, and two, I wasn't aware that the eye was a Malaysian horror film. I thought that was yep, part of the whole J horror thing. So this has been a learning curve for me.、Yep. <laughs> the Ping Brothers are Malaysian. We can agree that we don't like the American remake, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Let me correct myself. The eye actually is—I double-checked just to be sure. 
I'm mistaken, the I is a Hong Kong Singaporean production. Oh, we're both wrong. Then. Okay. Yeah, we're both wrong, but they are from Southeast Asia. We talked about ghosts. I mean, the thing, the, the, the fetus that follows your family around sounds like a truly horrific thing that that, that needs its own movie um, or, or its own novel. But let's talk about the ghosts in in um, nothing but black and teeth. Because I, I was going to say, you know, for my listeners, but to be honest, for me as well, can you explain a little bit about the phenomenon of yokai and how they work in your story? Um, at least specifically to my story, I'm not, I'm not going to posit my, uh, pose myself as an expert on yokai. At least in my story, they were just there. They were occupying this house. They were having a lovely time until this bunch of like young idiots rolled in to cause trouble. And the central yokai is very known for mischief. So obviously with people really wanting to <laughs> push their luck, she absolutely decided she had to go up to her old tricks. And this this figure is the let me get this right Oaguro Batari I believe yes correct. and and she she is both a form of yokai uh, which is a kind of a Japanese ghost there are many different varieties of them um, but I believe it's also derived from a very real practice mm-hmm. um, for a while in a certain part of history the Japanese saw blackened teeth as a sign of beauty. So one of the central features for that specific yokai is, well, obviously blackened teeth. And I don't know if it's necessarily, the yokai necessarily um, Japanese ghosts. I think they're more like Japanese supernatural creatures. I think the yuri are Japanese ghosts. Okay. So the yokai, like the kitsune, for example, which is the fox. So they're more kind of folkloric creatures. I think so. Again, like... I am not an expert specifically on the yokai or the yuri, so I hesitate to make um, any declarative statements there. Okay. I will reach out to my Twitter followers for some. Somebody will know. Somebody will know far more mm-hmm. than me. <laughs> I mean, why did you choose this particular variety of, of spirit as, as your central antagonist? Because there's a lot to choose from. I don't. I don't I always wonder about when people ask me about them being my central antagonist. I don't see them as antagonists. <laughs> I kind of just see them as random inhabitants of a house that got dragged into things and they were just there to cause some mischief. It's the humans who are mostly the antagonists. Okay. But like to answer your question maybe a little bit more seriously there. I wanted them to be an interesting excuse for our group of friends to do whatever they end up doing inside the house. I wanted them to be just exotic enough to be blamed for things because it is human nature to constantly look for answers outside of ourselves. What do you mean by excuse? Well, it often feels like people who have dark intents in their hearts, who have things that they want to do, they're looking for any source of external um, reasoning to blame their darker impulses on like oh this is what drove me to this oh this is what caused that rather than interrogate whatever is going on inside their heads and so i wanted the yokai to be their excuses for things 
I'm trying so hard not to spoil things. No, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Right, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense now. I understand. Mm -hmm. Because, again, I won't spoil it, but such bad things happen in this story. So bad. So bad. <laughs> and I won't go into it, but the climax is not so much actually about haunting or the supernatural as it is about our own kind of, well, the character's private morality and what people will do mm -hmm. under pressure. Yes. Which is, and it goes into some pretty horrific places in a very few spare pages. It's also me wanting to look at what happens if people are given excuse, given the situation, and given the possibility of getting away with, you know, something horrible. Like, yeah. where would they go? What would they do? And what would they say in the end to themselves to justify whatever they've done? Yeah. The, the spirit with the blackened teeth just becomes a vehicle to allow them to, to kind yes, of indulge that, the worst impulses. Yes, thank you. That is a very, very concise way of describing what I've been trying to convey so far. That's quite an interesting spin on the haunted house because normally the haunted house is about kind of good people fighting back against some kind of invasive evil spirit. But in this one, it's about the evil spirit well, no, forget evil. It's about the spirit kind of yes. allowing the invading force, which is the people, to kind of do their own dirty work and hurt themselves, really. Yes. Um, and I think to go back to an earlier thing you mentioned, this is me drawing as well from my own background as a Malaysian. Um, like you said, the West tends to see the house, the haunted house, as the demonic presence, the evil that the good people need to fight against. And back home, very often the assumption is the spirits are always there, the ghosts are always there. It's you pushing your luck by going into their territory. And I wanted to capture that in this book. That's an important, subtle difference, isn't it? Because, mm -hmm. and, and that's right, I'm, I'm kind of thinking on my feet now, so I may say the wrong thing, but I'm just wondering whether that is something to do with the kind of colonial experience. Because you are right. Sort of British and American haunted houses are places where the characters feel entitled to be and they feel like mm -hmm. it is almost the duty to colonize this space and to make to mm -hmm. domesticate this space and they and any any kind of um pushback against that by the people who were the spirits that were already there is just assumed to be an evil thing. Whereas in your stories, and by the sound of things, you know, the wider cultural phenomenon of supernaturalism in, in, in Southeast Asia, it sounds like the the spirit that's already there is is the person who, to some degree, de deserves our sympathy against this invading, colonising force. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think you're definitely right on the money. Um, I remember a research paper I've read several years ago about how Christian evangelists came to Southeast Asia and just tried desperately to go out of their way to like villainize all of the supernatural creatures that existed in the folklore there in the hopes that they, by doing so, they could chase people to Christianity. And yeah, you're right. And that the spirits back home are just kind of there. Some of them are terrifying. Some of them will just kill you dead if you're in their territory. But they're often regarded in the same way you might regard a tiger. It really isn't the tiger's fault if you wander into its den banging a drum, going, hello, eat me. Like, it's <laughs> it's got to happen if you're doing that. 
I'm going to go away and reshape and think about that as kind of haunted house as as colonial narrative. I'm sure there's been a lot written on it, but it's a, it's a new thought to me that I hadn't considered. So, yeah, I need to muse on that a little bit. So do I. Like I always love when this happens when a conversation just kind of sparks an idea. It happens more than I would <laughs> expect on this show. Um, I mean, talking about the humans or the party goers as this kind of invading force, it made me laugh a moment ago when when you were saying that you don't you don't think of the the yokai as an antagonist because i've actually written down a question where i've said that actually i say central antagonist but in many ways i prefer her to some of the still breathing characters who invade her home um, are we supposed to look on these people with affection or pity or are we as i did allowed to enjoy the kind of puncturing of their arrogance Oh, I, I love that you had that written down. That captures so much of what I wanted to convey through the book. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy seeing them get their comeuppance because, I mean, it's a weird book to talk about laughing at because there's not much happens that's funny. But there is one passage where I laughed out loud because I really like how efficiently you expose their characters through implication as much as action. Thank you. And there's one point where they are they are walking around this grand historical mansion like they own the place and they're listening to Taylor Swift, Coldplay and Carly <laughs> Rae Jepsen. And it tells you everything you need to know about these people and where they come from. <laughs> I'm so glad you got that. That was very intentional. Yeah, they're, ba- they're basic bitches, basically, you know, who have just like invaded yes. this space and are not prepared for what they're getting. Yeah, I, I, I laughed out loud at that part. More serious question. Mm-hmm. And I may be kind of throwing this at you. You may not have read the books in question, but I've noticed a kind of mini trend in horror this year. Mm -hmm. Yours is the third book I've read that features crass white Westerners transforming another culture's site of trauma into a wedding venue. Really? Yeah. V. Castro did it with Queen of the Cicadas. Latanya McQueen did it in When the Reckoning Comes. And you've done it in Black and Teeth. So in, in V. Castro's book, it's it's the site of an awful murder of a Mexican immigrant worker that becomes a wedding venue. Mm-hmm. In Latanya McQueen's book, it is an old plantation house that is being used for uh, a wedding. It, and it's kind of set up as an antebellum waiting house with entirely black staff and etc. And then in your book, again, it's a site of cultural trauma that is just undermined into you know, a wedding space. What's going on there, do you think? Why is that trope emerge? What is it about weddings or white people's weddings that, that causes such angst? I, I think it has a lot to do with everything you see on Twitter. Every few months, there's somebody showing off wedding photos somewhere horrible. I think there was a couple who wanted to stage their wedding photo in a mock like regional conflict thing with like soldiers everywhere and then there was another wedding couple who was like we're going to take photos in front of a volcano that is devastating this country and it's like and i think that might have just seeped into the zeitgeist as deeply cringe inducing and emerged in writing eventually because it's just such a notable little kind of theme, because obviously all three books are very, very different things and handle it very differently. It's just interesting that that wedding trope has come up again and again. And you, you are right. The, the Instagram thing, I mean, when Chernobyl came out, 
and the TV show. Yes. Were, immediately, there were models in, in Chernobyl, like walking around in boiler suits. It is, I think it's something that offends some basic part of all of us. And there was also that stint where there was this lake that was just emerald green. And scientists were like, do not swim in this. This is terrible. This is toxic. This is potentially radioactive or something. And then there's like a billion influencers just swimming along. And it's like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Well, that, that Taylor Swift, Coldplay, and Carla Rae Jepsen thing really skewers them. It, it really does like <laughs> get everything across. Uh, to finish on a more serious note, I suppose, you you drive this idea of, I don't know, colonialism or, you know, crassness or entitlement, all that stuff. You, you really do drive it home on the the very first page because you write that it felt profane to see the place like this without curators mm-hmm. to chaperone us. No one to say, do not touch and be careful. This was old before the word for such things existed. And in some ways, it's the ultimate urban legend, isn't it? You know, thrill seekers Mm -hmm. invade a sacred space with no respect for what actually makes it sacred. And then bad shit happens to them. Yes. Were you writing from a position of anger when you wrote this? Or were you angry at something? Because it feels like you're taking out your kind of rage and disdain on these awful people. A little bit, I think. A mixture of anger, a mixture of regret. Um, Sean and Maguire very kindly did a tread on this um, when she read it. And she talked about how this book feels like a quiet unhappiness and an angry regret that somehow we got here. It is very sorry we are at this point, but we are at this point. And it's that kind of anger, yes, that I definitely infused in the book. Because I kind of wrote it um, for a little bit of context for those who haven't listened to other podcasts and interviews I've done. My fa- When my father died, I was told that he died of a heart attack. A year later, I found out that he hung himself, actually, under very terrible circumstances. And I was devastated. But our culture is built as such that people who are grieving are almost tacitly given only a single year to grieve. Mm -hmm. And if you grieve any longer than that, everyone starts looking at you funny, going, aren't you done with it? Aren't you done with being unhappy? And during that time, while I was trying to figure out grieving again after I'd had a year to grieve, some relationships, some friendships that I had proved surprisingly toxic as people took more and more and more out of me and asked more. And it was anger at them for taking advantage of a situation. And it was also anger at myself as well, because I forgot how to say no. I forgot how to establish boundaries. I was just so utterly grateful to have them there that I was willing to tolerate whatever they threw at me. And so, yeah, the book kind of partially came out of my anger at all of those things. Well, that's a very profound answer. And I think it goes some way to explaining how you get so much kind of razor sharp nastiness into such a paired back story because these people 
are not friends, are they? They are they are people who were once friends and they are habitually friends, but they're, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there is nothing between them. If they met at this point in their lives, they, they would not be friends. And yes. I was kind of laughing at the nastiness of it all, how it unfolds and the kind of the bitchy bitterness between them. But <laughs> you telling me that now gives a much more poignant take I'm kind of casting my mind back over the events and it it gives a much more poignant take on on the events and and what the final resolution actually means for for the protagonist who I assume therefore mm-hmm. is is in some degrees you know based on yourself I love it yes um uh that book drew a lot for me looking at the shadow shell cells of the people I know and myself mm-hmm. the darkest worst parts of us and they're all composites. Even Kat is a composite. She's not entirely me, even if she carries a lot of my emotions. Um, and speaking of the relationships and how you talked about how they were just habitually friends, um, the book is also me exploring that idea, honestly. Yeah. I think culturally, we are taught to look at every relationship as a thing that needs to be permanent. We're told to hang on to our romances. We're told to hang on to our friendships. And the only ending we should allow is death. We are not allowed to say that we've outgrown our friendships. We're not allowed to say we've outgrown our relationships. When we do, we just don't have the tools to deal with it. So instead of acknowledging some things have a finite lifespan we cling on to it we hold on to it long after it's gone gangrenous and it's just septic and the poison from it just pours through us and we smile and we smile and we smile no matter what yeah so yeah um again i'm really loving the insight you have on the book like you've gotten so much of the things i wanted to explore there Oh, thank you. I, mean, I think it's because that aspect really spoke to me. As I said, I found it funny at first, but now not so much. But because I've got friends who it's a particularly kind of like British blokey thing where we kind of say, you know, like he, he's such an arse, but, you know, he's our friend. And it's like you make these allowances for people because that, mm-hmm. that friendship is there. And it's but I've got friends who if I met them now, I'd be like not a chance will we become close, you know, not a chance. And it's it's built upon decades of kind of allowances and habit you know and I just think it, it, it's as you say I've never heard it put that way before but yeah we are we are taught to think the only narrative that's acceptable for friendship is forever and I used to have a um an ex an ex-girlfriend of mine years ago who had this phrase and she said that people come together for a day a reason or a season and mm-hmm. I think that's quite a healthy way to think that you know it is. Some, sometimes it can just be a part of your life and you can go on and nothing is lost and nothing is squandered. It, it doesn't need to be a waste if you're not together forever. But it, um, just to touch on what you just said, isn't it interesting, though, that you have friends like that, that you know you would never be friends with right now, but you still go out and hang out with them. You still yeah. talk to them. You yeah. still spend time with them, even though at the back of your head, you're going, I, I don't like this person. Why am I here? And it's yeah. so interesting that we force ourselves to still do it, even though that lizard brain is screaming, why? Indeed. I mean, I'm going to release this episode into the ether now, and all of my friends are going to listen, and they're all going to think, <laughs> is it me? So I'm going to say, guys, no, it's it's not you guys. Apart from you, 
it is you. <laughs> you know it's you. <laughs> no. Um, listen, I always I always close on the same two questions, Cas. So um, if you wouldn't mind, recommending a book for my listeners and telling us why. Um, just off the top of my head, I really love T. Kingfisher's upcoming What Moves the Dead, which is a very creepy retelling of the fall of the House of Usher. And it has one of the most, one of the eeriest antagonists I've ever encountered in my life. And it's been months since I read my early copy and I'm still thinking of the ending. So the book's not coming out anytime soon. I, at least I don't think so, but you should all pre-order it. It's really good. Well, it's out next July, and I'm going to have to get Ursula back on the show because she came on to talk about The Hollow Places uh, last year. And... Oh, I love The Hollow Places so much. Yeah, it's a great book. I preferred The Twisted Ones, which I think is one of the scariest books I've read in recent years. Um. But she came on and she was the funniest person I've ever spoken to. She was like, I actually, I actually said to her at one point, like, we have to stop laughing and talk about scary stuff. Because, <laughs> I um, love that. And I, I didn't realise that her new book was a play on the House of Usher because I know she likes to do it that. Is. She likes to take things apart and put back together. I didn't realise that. So, yeah, that's a definite read. That's called What Moves the Dead, yeah? Yes. And it's out next July. So one for everyone's wish list. Last question. I ask everyone, I hope you don't mind answering, but what truly scares you? Hmm. Do you want a funny answer or a serious answer or both? Give me both. I'm scared of goldfish. I am (laughs) utterly terrified of goldfish. I've stuck my arms elbow deep into a vat of maggots before I've handled snakes. I have no problems with insects. Anything with teeth do not remotely scare me. I think lampreys are kind of adorable if you flip them over. But I'm scared of goldfish. I am genuinely terrified of goldfish. I don't know why, I just am. I will not sit in a room with one. (laughs) I always think when people say stuff like that, I always think there must be some primal episode that you aren't aware of, something with a goldfish. I have no idea. It's like, I know a goldfish is just generally a completely harmless thing, but... (sighs) I had I, um, like I had James Han Matson on the show a few weeks ago, and he also said that his uh, he his his fear was fish. So <laughs> so far, I've had two Asian horror authors on the show, and they've both said fish. So I need to go for three and see if it's a pattern. I will note though. I'm okay with other fish. I don't mind things with teeth. I don't mind creepy things. It's just goldfish specifically. Just goldfish. Out. I think they're the cutest of fish, but who am I to question your fear? (laughs) And go and watch your serious one then. Living living the life I will regret. I'm slowly getting, well, that's a lie. I've always been thinking about this ever since I was a kid. Um, The way I see death in life is kind of like this. Life is this enormously fun party that you're at. You meet lots of people. Sometimes people get drunk and little arguments break loose. But you're running around and having the best possible time, or at least trying to be. By the end of the day, like with every party and with every summer camp, your parents, your guardian, they'll come to take you home. 
And that's why I see deaf as, deaf as kind of. At some point or another, he will come ring the doorbell and he will come direct to collect me. And I often dream of it being a case of me just quietly telling him everything I've done across this life, setting on a plate at my every achievement, my every anecdote, and just regaling him with stories about each and every one of them as I slowly drift off to sleep. And my greatest fear in life is having a poor collection of stories to bring him at the end of the day. Wow. I mean, that's weirdly beautiful and and chilling at the same time. Quite appropriate for a horror writer, you think? Well, indeed, yeah. Because normally when we end these things on a downbeat note, I kind of scurry around to try and find a way to lighten the mood at the end. But I'm just going to let that be, I think, because it was was beautiful. I mean, I will say that in, in a strange kind of mirroring of what you just said, but in a far, far less poetic sentiments, I have long had this belief that if faced with two choices in life, always pick the one that will make the greatest story in the pub. <laughs> that is a very British way of putting it. Yeah, that's my rule. Because I always think, like, if you do the wrong thing, invert, you know, quotation marks, the wrong thing, and you experience a moment's pain or, you know, an hour's discomfort or even, you know, more more likely you experience embarrassment. In mm-hmm. six months, you're not going to care. And that is going to be a fantastic story to tell friends when you're drunk. You know, so I always pick the thing that has the greatest prospect of being a good story when I'm drunk, which I think it, is kind of uh, what you're saying, but in a much more yes. British kind of grimy, gritty way. <laughs> oh, it's also very similar to my own general philosophy in life. Like you just said, everything we do, every moment that we have, every year that we live, um, they generally just fade to memory. And I'm just going to go on the teeny tiniest rant on this before we, I know we're at the end, but I'm just going to go on it. But our lives are definitely defined by our memories. Neuroplasticity is such that if we stick with routines and we stick with the safety, we start losing years and decades of our lives to the banal activities of daily life. And the best way to know that you have had a life lived is to do exactly what you said. To always choose the more interesting option, to always choose the one that makes the bigger, the better story. Because when you look back, that's all we are. We are the stories we create in our lives. And what a shame it would be if we have terrible ones. Yeah. I'm I'm strangely moved by this. I uh I think I'm I'm really glad that we've gone down this avenue at the end. I think it's a nice way to leave the conversation. And and if anything, I mean, you're moving to Sweden, so that sounds like the interesting option. It definitely is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, all I can say is, I mean, the book, I think people are going to love it. I think people are going to sit and read it in one sitting and just be horrified and amused and all those things. And I'm glad you wrote it, and I'm even more glad you came to talk to me about it. So, so Cassandra Kaur, thank you for talking scared. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so the most important news first. Ted is not in kennels. I know, we can all now breathe a sigh of relief. Following a conversation with said kennels, 
after which I may or may not have burst into tears. <laughs> My good friend James and his lovely wife Bria offer to look after the little man. Now, James listens to this show on occasions, so providing he hasn't lost my dog, I'd like to offer a heartfelt thanks from all of us here at Talking Scared, as I, I know we were all concerned, right? Yeah, it, it's terrible, it's hard times, you, you get a dog and it's like leaving a piece of your heart at home when you leave the house, it's, it's really tough times. Anyway, back to Cass, who had, had a similar thing with her cat, so I feel quite vindicated. Our conversation started as a pleasant little chat about their unpleasant little book, but it became this whole poignant life lesson. Those last few minutes were pretty moving, I thought. I don't think anyone could accuse Cass of living a boring life, and I'm, I'm sure they'll have plenty of stories to charm death with, including nothing but blackened teeth. It's an odd thing. So rarely in life do you look at any media and think, I wish this was longer. But in this case, I, I do. I understand and respect why Cass wrote it in this rapier sharp way. But there is just so much scope for a sprawling haunted house saga. And I wanted more. I was left hungry, starving, but just the way it was intended, I suppose. Like I say, you'll read this one in a single sitting, no doubt, and, and like me, I expect a lot of you will want to know more about this house, about these ghosts, and, and maybe even about the people they torment, although they are such arseholes. It's actually one of the few horror stories I've read recently where I've had zero guilt about enjoying the most terrible things happening to the humans. It's fun, actually. It's a, a palate cleanser. I also want to know more about the yokai and the yuri, as well as any other fascinating South East Asian folklore. If you know any or know any films or books you can recommend, then reach out to TalkScaredPod on Twitter or email direct at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Seriously, I do mean it. Tell me all the hidden secrets of Asian horror that I don't yet know. And there's a lot I don't yet know. My recommendation would be the Korean movie, A Tale of Two Sisters, directed by Kim Ji-Woon. It melds a particular Asian horror aesthetic with a story that is indebted to European folklore. It's really beautiful to look at, and it's tragic, and it also scared me to absolute pieces. You will never look under your sink again comfortably. I'm also trying to up my Instagram game, and I think there are now some quite pretty pictures on there, to be honest. So go hunt me down at Talking Scared Pod and give the show a follow. Lastly, if you want to support the show and receive extra bonus content at least twice per month, as well as access to the exclusive Talking Scared Book Club, you can subscribe to Patreon, either through the link in the show notes or direct at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Anyway... I hope you're all very well, and I look forward to getting back to the helm in a few weeks. Don't worry, next week's episode is already set up to hit your devices at exactly the same time. It's a chat with Catherine M. Valente about her new novella, Comfort Me With Apples, which is a real head spinner. Until then, though, respect the ghosts in your house, listen to better music, and dump the toxic people in your life. Read good books, and remember... It's good to be scared. <laughs>